0: BDSM. The letters bring to mind images of leather and latex, the highest, shiniest black stilettos, whips, handcuffs. It's far from your average sexual experience. There is way more going on psychologically than just sexual arousal. The feeling of being helpless, restrained, or the sharp smack of a cane, or that feeling of power when someone looks up at you and says, yes, mistress, or yes, master. It's easy to look at such things with fear and apprehension. It's understandable even. But while well, it proves that you're just not looking closely enough, Today, we're getting all up in the ropes and chains, as they have been throughout history. These practices are far from new. We will dig deep into the history of the practice today, and next week we will cover the psychology of it all. That's right, folks. It is our first two-parter. I cannot wait to get this one started. So everyone, are you ready to have a kinky little time with me today? Let's get naked and talk about BDSM. Hello everyone, and happy hump day! Welcome to Get Naked with Alex, a show that aims to make you wonder what kinky shit people got up to before going to the grocery store today. This is legitimately something that I think about all the time. I have such an insane curiosity for people's personal lives, and I have very much been known to ask super invasive questions to people I barely know. I am shameless. If I could just be a fly on the wall everywhere at all times, I would be a very happy bunch of flies. So this is our first two-parter. Uh, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to split it up at first, but there was so much to go through when it comes to the history alone that I really didn't feel like I could give either side enough coverage without bogging the whole topic down. There are so many interesting things I learned. I hope you all learned something, too. So we're just going to jump right in. BDSM is actually six abbreviated words, not four. Bondage and discipline, dominant submission, and sadism and masochism, or sadomasochism. The D's and the S's have been tied together. I started to organize this episode into four parts of BDSM, but it's all so intertwined that I couldn't actually separate them without having to double back and add in other parts to the same history. So we're just gonna do a, a sort of timeline for it all. And I wanna start at the very, very, very beginning. One of the first historical depictions of BDSM actually comes from a Mesopotamian goddess, Inanna, or Ishtar as she's later called. I've talked about her before, And she almost needs her own episode, but I'll give you a little info on her for now. She was the goddess of love, beauty, sex, desire, fertility, war, justice, and political power. Her myth came about a little before 4000 BC and lasted until around 2000 BC. So for a good 2000 years, she was a prominent figure in these large ancient cultures. In Mesopotamia, they had a polytheistic belief system, meaning they believed in multiple gods. And each of these gods had followers that formed cults. There were three ruling deities called the Triad of Heaven. These were considered the big badasses, and they ruled three parts of the heavens. Enlil ruled the northern sky. An ruled the middle sky, or the equatorial sky. And Enki, 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 (laughs) E-N-K-I, ruled the southern sky. These three gods ruled over everything from storms to earth, wind, the ocean, creativity, and people as a whole. Under these gods were seven celestial gods, these including Inanna. Inanna actually becomes one of the most influential gods of her time, though. She starts as a secondary god and just keeps coming up in myths and just becomes really important to the culture. The planet she was associated with was Venus, but she also had the color blue and the metal copper associated with her. And I love this. Blue is the best color ever. So she wins in my book. So she's already the ruler of sex and love, but this is where the BDSM comes in. In stories of her, you can find these ceremonies that she would be a part of, where she would whip her followers, and the whipping would cause the humans to dance and become aroused, and eventually, the whipping would cause them to have sex. This was a ceremony intended to bring about procreation. This is what people believed was happening. This whole whipping party was how people believed their civilization would live on forever. Obviously, the Mesopotamian culture died out eventually, but sexy gods and BDSM, not so much. Ancient Egypt had its own sexy gods and plenty of -of out-of-the-ordinary sexual practices, including incest, sex with animals, but there's a surprising lack of BDSM themes. Honestly, I expected more from Egypt. A little disappointed. If we travel north a little, we find that China has some of its shit together. Apparently, between 1500 BC and 220 BC, men in China spent a lot of time and energy making sure their wives were sexually satisfied. They believed this would keep the wives faithful. And the higher up in society you were, the more wives you had, and that meant you had to keep up. I'm going to consider this on the edge of bondage, but men would use cock rings to keep from finishing too early into his escapades with all his wives. This may not fit into BDSM entirely, but it is a ring that fits tightly around the base of a penis, sort of cutting out the blood flow, allowing for a delay in ejaculation. I don't feel like there's enough sexual attraction towards the actual binding of the penis in that way, but it's still binding a penis, and I think that's at least worth mentioning. Moving south again, In India, the Kama Sutra sheds a little light on some household BDSM practices. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this in a previous episode as well, but I'll recap a little. The Kama Sutra was a book written between 400 BC and 300 CE, or Common Era. This book, contrary to popular belief, was not a book full of sex positions. The purpose of this book overall was to educate people on the ways of happiness and how to have an overall better quality of life. Before the book even gets sexy, they have chapters on how to be a successful businessman and how to enjoy sports and parties. Then, when it talks about sex, it explains the different types of sexual partners a person may have, how to find one. There's a whole chapter on how to woo and court a lady before asking her to marry you. They talk about how to earn a woman's trust and how to make your wife happy before they get into how to sexually please another human. It's pretty amazing. So in this book... They discuss what is commonly considered the first mention of sadomasochism with consensual partners. It states that, when love becomes intense, it is normal for a woman to scratch her lover with her nails, leaving marks. The appropriate times to have this kind of intense sex is when your lover is leaving for a trip or returning, during makeup sex, and when the woman is intoxicated. After the list of when, there's a list of where the book gives a few places on the body that are scratchable, but then states that you can throw all of this out the fucking window if the lovemaking is so good. It doesn't matter when or where you leave your mark. Here, it also mentions that biting and scratching usually go hand in hand. Something I kind of love... After the book discusses where to bite, where to scratch, and all that, they go into what the qualities of good nails and teeth are. They believed in proper hygiene and upkeep if you were planning on going around using these weapons on other people. I'm so pissed that as a young adult, I thought the Kama Sutra was just sex positions. How the hell did we lose the how to have a happy fulfilling life part? That's literally the entire focus of the book. And I think it's a little more important than how many ways can you pile drive your neighbor Cindy? I'm really excited to do an episode on the Kama Sutra, can you tell? This book also covers slapping during sexual encounters. When a man strikes a woman, she should strike him back, depending on the type of slap and what positions you're in, and also talks about slapping the breasts with intensity matching the intensity of the sex, all the way up until the end. This was a very widely accepted practice at the time, and was very much recommended for all couples. In ancient Greek tales, there's one famous story, tied heavily to an early depiction of erotic bondage. I almost didn't mention it because it's not a consensual act, but it is constantly used as an example of historical BDSM practices, so I feel like I should at least give it a mention. The stories of Andromeda and the Kraken. Basically, Andromeda is the daughter of a king and a queen, and the queen offends Poseidon, the god of the sea, by saying that Andromeda is prettier than the sea nymphs that accompany Poseidon on the daily. So Poseidon sends the Kraken to destroy the kingdom by the sea. And as a sacrifice to save the city, the king and the queen tie Andromeda to a rock in the ocean, nude. The gods all gather to watch the kraken rape Andromeda, but she is saved at the last minute by Perseus. So, it's not consensual, but it's considered an act of binding during sexual intercourse. I don't think it should really be counted as a part of the true history of BDSM, but it should at least be mentioned. We talked earlier about how the Kama Sutra was considered the first mention of consensual sadomasochism, but at the time, it wasn't called sadomasochism. There wasn't even a name for the playful sexual pain-giving or receiving. It was just a thing that happened. Insert Marquis de Sade. A lot of you probably already know about this guy. He's practically a household name at this point. Marquis de Sade was born June 2nd, 1740, in Paris, France. He grew up being raised by servants after his parents split up, and he's known for being a very spoiled child. His story starts when he was sent to a school as a young boy, where he was whipped for misconduct. It's stated in later trials that this is where he becomes sort of obsessed with the act of whipping and being whipped. Saad is very much famous for his enjoyments of pain and pleasure. He spent a lot of time in prisons due to his deviant behaviors, and here is where he would write most of his famous works. Saad really pushed the boundaries. He focused a lot on the pleasure one derives from the pain of another. In almost all of his writing, he tells of people molesting, caging, raping, cutting, choking, branding, and even murdering others, all for sexual gratification. I took a little time to read chunks out of a book of his called 120 Days in Sodom, and holy fucking hell, that book is graphic. This book outlines the tale of four men who kidnap a bunch of people, including a bunch of kids, and lock themselves in this tucked away castle. Over the course of a couple months, these men partake in some crazy shit. It starts light, teaching the kids to masturbate and punishing punishing them if they don't. Over time, they eventually have all-out orgies with the staff, adults, and kids. Then, somewhere, these people start willingly eating feces as a form of pleasure. Towards the end, the men start becoming extremely violent. They whip, beat, cut their captives, both during and not during sex acts. All of this slowly escalates to the brutal murder of some of the captives. It's fucking crazy. Hard to read through it touches on really heavy shit. But he stood by his belief that people should be allowed to do whatever pleased them, even if it was extremely violent. It's called being a libertine. A libertine is someone who has no moral code, is not held back by society standards. They believed that experiences perceived through all of the different senses was the most valuable thing in the world, and looked down on anyone who had any kind of restraint or hesitation, especially in a sexual manner. He was extreme, and most of his views were, again, involving non-consenting partners. But his name is where we get the term sadism. Sadism is simply the tendency to gain pleasure from someone else's pain. So that covers the Sado part. The lesser-known contributor is Leopold von Seicher Massach. He was born well after Marquis de Sade in 1836 in Germany and was known for finding pleasure in receiving pain. His most famous work, Venus in Furs, tells the story of a man who is so in love and obsessed with a woman that he begs her to let him become a slave to her. He gets her to become more mean and more violent with him, but instead of falling in love, she kind of starts to resent him. This is a reoccurring theme in his works, men being dominated by women, and this extended into his personal life as well. He had a contract written up and signed by his mistress, stating that he was to be her slave for six months, and that she was to wear furs often, especially when she was feeling particularly cruel. He got a few sexual partners to engage in these practices, and he was known for it. When the term masochism started being used, he was still alive, and apparently didn't like the use of the name, but it stuck. And that was the birth of the term sadomasochism, except here there's someone enjoying both ends of it. Sometime between the birth and death of both of these men, Japan began its own adventure with bondage. There's one man in particular, an artist named Siyu Ito, I'm definitely going to fuck that one up, Siyu Ito, who began doing art studies on the way people were being held captive in wars, and he began using ropes to bind the models and started the art of kinbaku, which means tight binding. This practice also goes by the name shibari, which translates to to tie decoratively. This practice has never really gone out of style since it started, and some of these knots and bindings are absolutely fucking gorgeous. It takes training to pull it off, too. You need to know how tightly to bind someone without causing harm, and also how to create the knots themselves around the bodies so it doesn't end up looking like a clumpy bunch of rope. At this point, people are getting pretty curious about the friskier things in life. During the Victorian era, you can find accounts of prostitutes whipping their clients and utilizing restraints. In the early 1900s, seeing as the Victorian era kind of ushered in a prudish mentality when it came to sex, you see the rise of black market pornography. Fetish pornography really took off around the 1930s, and just in time, as someone very important to BDSM culture, had just been born. On April 22, 1923, in Nashville, Tennessee, Walter Roy Page and Edna May Purtle gave birth to their second child, Betty. Every single human in Western culture knows who Betty Page is. She is literally the queen of pinup. She starts off looking just to become an actress, but gets wrapped up in fetish pornography and becomes an actual icon. She posed in both submissive and dominant roles, but her main appeal was the inhibition to be naked. She was confident and gorgeous and had no fear, and that made her an instant hit with every photographer. During this time, you also start to see a rise in leather as a part of BDSM communities. I really had never thought about why leather might be used as the textile of choice here. It just seemed to fit. And then I read a few articles on the rise of black leather in gay clubs in the mid-1900s. When large cities became a thing, people would commute from suburbs to the mostly male workforce in the city's main centers. This would leave wives at home, while men grouped together for extended periods of time. Here is where you see underground gay clubs start to emerge. And with the clubs came people fighting against them. The stereotype was that gay men were pansies, girly. They lacked masculinity. And this obviously angered many men, as it should have. And they began to cling to the things that made them feel more masculine. Enter leather, center stage. Leather was being heavily used in biker communities due to its thick protective properties. And biker gangs were manly as fuck. And gay men loved them. They loved feeling manly again. And they took that feeling back to the clubs. Leather is tough. Thick, strong, and usually associated with dominance. While lace takes the role of soft, thin, fragile, and feminine textiles. And it bled over into the BDSM community pretty quickly. And we end up in the pretty modern era of BDSM from here. In more recent times, BDSM kind of became a catch-all for everything that wasn't average. Fetishists, voyeurism, and exhibitionism, cosplay and role-playing. It all gets shoved up under the same four letters, but they don't entirely fit. And that's why they didn't really get covered here. They will all get covered in due time, but I really wanted to give BDSM, at its most basic level, the attention it deserved. This is not the end, however. Next week, we are going to tackle the psychological side of BDSM. We covered the history, and now you get the science. We'll talk more about the legal and medical side of it all as well. Most of next week's episode is going to be mostly modern, as we didn't really study sexuality until recently, but it's definitely worth listening to, nonetheless. Now, last episode, I asked you all what sort of sexual myths you believed when you were younger. I got some fun answers. There were some I'd heard before and others that blew my mind. Here's a few of my favorites. To make a baby, a guy must pee in a girl's butt. Asian women have sideways vaginas. I almost didn't want to add this to the list because, well, it's racist, obviously. But children don't fucking understand that half the time. It's a myth that was debunked, eventually. Masturbation will make you go blind. You could get pregnant by kissing. If you have sex before marriage, you become ugly. If you're a Christian, you could only become pregnant with your husband, and that a man's penis is always hard. Did any of you hear these growing up? I wonder if there were weirder myths during other points of history. What myths will show up in the future? Who the fuck knows? (laughs) This week, the question is, what is a non-sexual thing that turns you on? I, for example, get extremely aroused by humans and water. Showering, floating in a pool, swimming in the ocean. It's so extremely erotic to me. I could be swimming around all by myself, and I can get myself all worked up just by being in the water. I don't know. I have a water fetish, I guess. What sorts of things turn you on that aren't really considered sexual? If you want to send in an answer, or if you just want to say hi, shoot me an email at getnaked.alex at gmail.com. That's getnaked.alex, A-L-I-X, at gmail.com. Or you can shoot me a message on the Get Naked with Alex Facebook page, Instagram, or Twitter, The links will be available in the episode description. You can also find the Question of the Week pinned in the Question of the Week channel in the Get Naked with Alex Discord chat group. Feel free to submit your answers to me privately there as well, or, super conveniently, in the Question of the Week channel, where I get most of my answers. I'm so curious what sorts of answers you guys will give me. I kind of love this segment. I would like to take a quick second to thank my deviants over at patreon.com. You guys rock. I would not be able to do this without you. And I got your stickers. Those will be getting mailed out this week. And if you haven't signed up for the second Patreon tier, you missed out on the first sticker printing. I am sorry, guys. I will be doing more very soon, though. I'm still getting this shit up and running, but expect to see your merch in the mail very soon. I fucking love you guys. If you want to support the show and add yourself to the ranks of absolute fucking badasses, go over to patreon.com getnaked get naked and reap those sexy, sexy benefits. If you'd rather not deal with Patreon for whatever reason, but you still want to support the show, please, please take a second to rate this podcast on whatever platform you listen on. I know that not every platform has a rating system, but if it does, do me a solid. The more ratings we get, the more people can see this podcast, and that means we get to educate more people. That cannot be a bad thing. I also want to thank the amazing Rachel Smith, also known in the Discord group as the Unicorn Researcher Kitty, my partner in crime and my research assistant. I would have self-imploded by now if it weren't for you. Okay, before I really close this episode out, I want to try and answer a couple questions. The first being, what the fuck did we learn today? The second being, how does this affect you? I think what I really took away from today was that BDSM has literally been around since the dawn of man. I felt like, going into this podcast, I'd see things like fetishes and kinky shit come up much later in our history. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all. We have our extreme cases, like Marquis de Sade, but we also have people just looking to take back their own masculinity. We have gods whipping their followers, but also have two people, madly in love, just having having such passionate sex that nails and teeth are digging into skin. I get like that. I have never felt like I was even close to part of the BDSM community, but I bite, I scratch, I can't help it. It doesn't feel good to me to cause pain, but it happens. And my love laughs it off while I apologize a lot, but it's there, and sometimes I even like being held down. My love life exists right on the fringe of BDSM, and I really have never looked at it that way. And that's how this might affect you. This show is out to make you loudly and proudly enjoy your sexuality, whatever it may be. You deserve to be happy and not feel shame for it. I deserve it. We as a species deserve it. As long as everything you do causes no harm and everyone is consenting, then you deserve to have that experience. That's how this affects you. And until next week, you glorious humans, happy humping.